Well, we're very happy to be here. And I wanted to um, speak for a few minutes anyway about maybe the, the thing which comes first. I want to refer back to Master Kirpal Singh's concept of the spiritual revolution. I don't want to read a very large part of his talk, which some of you will recall he gave on December 7th, 1972, very near the end of his last world tour. Dear brothers and sisters, the people are crying for peace. How can we have it? Peace should start from our hearts. We should give out peace as prayed by Guru Nanak. Peace be unto all the world over under thy will, O God. And for this, naturally, there must be a spiritual revolution. The world is already in revolution, but this revolution should be different. This revolution should not be of the body, but against the evil propensities of the mind, which keep us away from God. This will be achieved if we give right understanding to the people at large, which will result in right thoughts. First comes understanding, then come right thoughts, which result in right speech, and right speech will result in right actions. The whole thing starts from right understanding. So you will find right understanding first lies in recognizing that there is a maker of the universe who is the controlling power and permeates all creation. This world did not come out of itself, there is a maker, and scientists lately have come to this conclusion that the whole creation is controlled by some power which is conscious. So this is the first thing. The whole world is the manifestation of God. No east and no west, the earth below and the sky overhead is his manifestation. This is the first right understanding. We are living in him, have our being in him. He is in us, outside us, above us, below us. Like fish in water, we have our existence in him. That is right understanding. And further, God made man with equal privileges all born the same way, no high, no low, all have got the same outer concessions, eyes, ears, etc., and all have the same inner concession. We are kept in the body by some higher power, which is the same for all. 
So this is right understanding, that we have this thing. God resides in every heart, and that all is holy where devotion kneels. All are born with the same privileges from God. No high, no low, no east, no west. And this will result in right thoughts. And then a few months later, Master gave at the occasion of his birthday celebration in February, just a few months after the tour, February 73, he gave a talk which has been called The Spiritual Revolution Explained because he refers to it in the course of that talk, he uses the same concept. And this is just a few paragraphs from that talk. I will not take much of your time now. There is a revolution in the world today in each and every country. It has, however, not achieved its purpose, which is that man should become man. That is to say, that human beings should become human beings. Master Kripal used the Urdu word insan when he spoke in Hindi in these subjects. Insan means one bubbling over with love. Master Kripal explained that to us. So this is what, this is the nature and essence of human beings is love. And the revolution then is so that we can live from the level of love. If man becomes man in the true sense of the word, he can all alone shake the whole world. Archimedes, who discovered the law of gravity, wanted to get the center of gravity of the universe so that he could shake the whole world. But the poor fellow couldn't get it. And he tells a long story about Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who was a famous Hindu saint in India, who made, by the force of his personality, made the a whole washing ghat, a collection of washermen, chant Haribo, which means um, say Hari or God, and uh, they all did it, although they didn't want to at first, because, as Master explains, what he was was so enormously real that it had that effect. So then referring to a whole bunch of talks by other people, he says, Now, dear brothers, all that you have heard today the whole thing has been put before you so beautifully. Do we really feel the necessity of this thing? If so, we should start acting on it from this very moment. If we would do that, we would surely become man, a true man, a true human being. And all those who come in contact with us will be influenced by us. A few words from a man like that will have greater effect than all the lengthy lectures. Gandhiji and others like him who lived up to their ideals. 
their ordinary words had great impact on the listeners. Today our words have no effect. We give recitations from the scriptures and talk learnedly without effect. What was there in the words Haribo? They had the radiation, the charging of realization. All of you assembled here can become ambassadors of truth. It is not so difficult to do that. The center of gravity is in you. You have only to awaken it. That will happen when there is no conflict between our thoughts, speech, and actions. When we do not profess one thing and do something else. We preach lofty ideals on pulpit and platform, but act differently in private. Indulging in the same vices, backbiting, enmity, hatred, narrow-mindedness, which we condemn so eloquently in public. Heart speaks to heart. Words spoken from the depth of the heart will move the heart of the listener. To put the whole thing in a nutshell, if we wish to see all mankind become man in the true sense, we should start with our own self. We should become men first. What is an ideal man? He is an embodiment of love. He has realized himself and realized God. He sees the light of God imminent in every form. He who sees that light manifest in all will naturally have love and respect for everyone. He will like to serve all. He will not cheat or exploit anyone. I just now mentioned the need for a spiritual revolution to bring about this transformation. And this revolution can only be brought about by a man of realization. Live the life. There is enough food for thought available. We read so many books, hear so many lectures, but how many true men are there? The more we hear, have of such pure men, true men, the more effect we will have on people. What little understanding I got by sitting at the feet of my master, Hazur Baba Sawan Singh Ji Maharaj, I am giving out to you. He loved all, even atheists. Once when he was posted at Marie Hills, an atheist who was suffering from tuberculosis was advised to sojourn in the hills by his doctors, came to Marie Hills. He knocked at every door for accommodation, but found them all closed. Nobody was willing to take him in. First, because of the highly infectious disease he was suffering from, and also because he did not believe in God. He came to the residence of Hazur Maharaji, who was away on duty at the time. He asked the housekeeper for accommodation and was refused. It so happened that Hazur Maharaji was just then returning home and saw the man being turned away from his house. He asked the housekeeper about it and was told that it was a tuberculosis patient asking for accommodation whom nobody was willing to take in. And what did you say? asked Hazur. 
I also refused him, for he was an atheist, said the housekeeper. Azura Maharaj told him, look here, this man may not know that God resides in him, but we know it, don't we? Please give him accommodation. The words of a man of realization have an impact on others. It comes through radiation. There is no need to speak. The whole thing is done through radiation. You have said so much about me, but I have yet to become a complete man. I have taken a few steps in that direction, and what little understanding I got through the grace of God and the grace of Hazur Maharaji and the opportunity that I got to live up to that, the whole credit for that goes to my master. If you find anything good in me, that again is due to his grace. The con I, I was present in the uh, high school in, uh, I think it was in Fort Lauderdale, possibly Miami. I get confused because Master spoke in both places that last week of the American tour in 72. I was present when he gave this talk, and I was very much struck by the concept of the spiritual revolution. And of course, this is what is meant when in the Bible it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist says that, and then um, it is said in the Gospels that after John was put into prison and was unable to do his work anymore, then Jesus began doing his work, and he began it with those very same words, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when I used to read those words as a young person, I didn't fully, I mean, they seemed like cliche to me, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what he was saying was exactly what Master Kripal was saying here. Repent, the word that is translated repent in the English Bibles is the Greek word in the, in the New Testament as originally written. The word is metanoia, which means turn around. And it's exactly the same meaning and usage as the word revolve or revolution. Turn your mind around. Why? Because the kingdom of the heavens, and it is in the plural, by the way, in the Greek, and it, it should be translated in the plural also, because he's talking about the inner planes there. The kingdom, the spiritual universe that you are only dimly and vaguely aware of as of now, is right there, right next to you right beside you, it's even within you, he says at one point. It's also among you, walking amongst you all in the person of the living master. All of those things are implicit in that, in that phrase and what they mean is that our opportunity is here. 
if we do what the Master is talking about in that talk and what Jesus is talking about and John the Baptist too in the Bible, if we see the universe as it really is, that is, if we see the physical universe from the point of view of the spiritual universe that is implicit within it and act according to the level of that, then we will be taking, making use of the opportunity that is ours. This is what the Master is calling us to. It's what all Masters, including Jesus Christ, are calling us to. This is what they come for, is to get us to do this so that we can live up to the full potential of our humanness, which is what Master means when he says that man can become really man. Human beings can become really human beings. This is what human beings were meant to do, is to love. And love not because someone tells them they ought to, but because they see for themselves what other human beings and themselves really are. They see that we are all children of God, that God really does reside in every heart. This is why that famous double commandment that Jesus gave when someone asked him what the most important commandment was. I mean, first he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And then he said, The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The second is like unto it because God resides in every heart. There is no difference. This is why also in the first epistle of John, St. John says so eloquently after explaining to us just what the masters have said here, that God is love. Then he says, if we say that we love God whom we cannot see, and we hate our brother or sister whom we can see, we are a liar. We can't hate our brother or sister and love God. We can't do that. And the reason we can't do that is because God resides in every heart. And we are to love our neighbor as ourself because in a very real sense, our neighbor is ourself. There is only one. And that one, if we get far enough within ourselves, if we reach the core of our being, we will see for our own self and experience and live on that level, the level of the love of God. And we will be in a position to understand exactly who human beings really are and what they were born for and what the purpose is of their coming on earth. This is why masters come. I mean, their, their mission is several fold. For one thing is to show us to do what master was talking about in the second reading, to show us what it's like to be a man of realization. When we come in contact with a master and he talks with us, tells us things, gives us advice, 
gives us his darshan so that we can see him, then we understand how the people in the Gospels, what they were thinking and feeling, how they were reacting. Also the people in the Buddhist scriptures, people in the various scriptures of the world who have experienced this very thing. They met a person who really was a person of realization. And everything that person said carried with it the love of God. And they knew that. And even there are people, even who have not perhaps become masters, but who have understood at least partly this, as Master mentioned, Mahatma Gandhi in the course of his talk, people like that who can work very differently from other people in the world who are doing the same sort of thing or think they are because they have understood this sufficiently to be able to move people's lives. So this is what the Master is calling us to. The spiritual revolution is for us to become part of. It's for us to make use of. It's for us to derive the benefit from. And uh, it is also what we have to accomplish within our own selves. We have to change our minds. Another way of, of thinking of it is changing the angle of vision. Okay. We, we are used to seeing things in certain ways. I mean, all of us are. They may be different ways for each of us, or slightly different. But the fact is that they are, um, we all have them. Ways of thinking about things, things we take for granted, assumptions. Um, they might be true, they might not be true. It's very hard to tell if we're in the middle of them. But all of those things put together constitute our normal way of looking at the world around us and at us as a part of it. And Master is saying here, and Jesus was saying before him, no, that's not enough. You have to turn your relationship to the world you live in around so that you see things the way they really are, or at least more like the way they really are. It may not be in the beginning certainly totally the way they are, but if, for example, we, we are relating to somebody, somebody relates to us, and uh, f treats us meanly, okay? does not do well by us, does not respect us, insults us. Naturally, our, usually most human beings coming out of their normal assumptions respond one of two ways. They either get angry and reply in kind, or they allow it to happen and feel rotten about it, although they may or may not. Uh, admit to themselves how rotten they feel. But neither of those solutions is adequate if we are going to relate to that person from the point of view of the God within him. This is why Sanchi says that in Satmat we don't intimidate anyone and we don't allow anyone to intimidate us. Both cases, you see, are violations of the 
of the recognition of the presence of God within each of us, both us and the person who is a problem to us. Master Kripati used to tell the story of the Buddha. The man came to him who really didn't like him, and he insulted him all afternoon, just piled insult, angry words, complaints, everything he had ever done he found fault with. And it got dark, and the man turned to go, and the Buddha said, well, wait a minute, dear friend. Um, if anyone brings a present, and the person to whom he brings the present does not accept it, then to whom does the present belong? And the man was surprised, and he said, well, to the person who brought it. And the Buddha said, well, dear friend, I don't accept this present you have brought me. We don't have to accept the present. See, either getting angry and responding in kind, or, excuse me, I don't always do so well with microphones, or um, not doing anything about it and allowing it to build up inside us and affect us one way or the other, both of those are accepting the present and allowing the other person to dictate to us the terms of our own personhood. If we are true to the God within us, we will not accept the present. And we'll really not accept it. It isn't that we will think about not accepting it for a few days and dwell on it and be obsessed by it, which is what the way most of us might understand what is meant including me, by the way, I've done this a hundred times, what is meant by not accepting it, but we'll, we won't allow it to enter into our, what we are. That doesn't have to happen. That's a choice we make to allow the other person to intimidate us in that way. Similarly, when we do it to somebody else, uh, exactly the same things apply. And we have no right to expect the other person to accept it. If they don't, we have no right to be upset because uh, who asked for that present in the first place? So if we can, what is required here, this is why the emphasis on forgiveness too. Jesus told a story which illustrates this point. It's in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19 of the the rich man king actually I think who had two slaves and one of them actually had a number of slaves but the story is about two of them one of them owed him and the figure in the Bible really is very enormous figure about nine million dollars a footnote in one version of the Bible says a deliberately fantastic sum. Okay, Jesus knew what he was doing when he put it like that. He owed his master nine million dollars and the master was going to throw him in jail. And the man begged and pleaded and he said, please don't do that. I will work very hard and I'll pay you back, I promise. 
So the master had pity on him and let him go. And the first thing that he did, he went out and found a fellow slave who owed him $12, backed him up against the wall, grabbed him by the throat and said, pay me or else. The guy couldn't pay him and he had him thrown in jail. And when the master found out about it, he was very upset. He said, I forgave you all that enormous amount, and you couldn't even forgive your fellow servant that piddling little amount. And he had him thrown into jail. And he said, let him stay there um, till he thinks about this. The point of that story is, okay, that we cannot, the way that we perceive things is not really a very accurate key to what's really happening. Things seem very clear to us. This person is wronging us. He's a bad guy. This person is uh, doing me a favor. He's a good guy. Like that. And the way that we relate to others too. But the fact is that we don't have any sense of the of the enormity of the background of the things that happen to us or of the things that we do. And uh, although the, the slave in the story was consciously aware, you see, for all of us, we don't know that we owe $9 million to somebody, and therefore it doesn't behoove us to be so insistent on getting the $12 that are owed us. We don't realize that we are in the same boat, only maybe much worse. But maybe we are. The point of the story, again, is that we don't see the universe on the level of, well, we can say the soul or reality or that which matters. We think we do, but we don't. In order to see it that way, we need to begin to put into practice the spiritual revolution within our own lives. And all of these things, seeing, remembering that God is in every heart, not thinking that we love God if we don't love our brother and sister, forgiving others because well, among other things, because we might need to be forgiven very badly ourselves if only we could see everything that we have done and how it's affected others. All of that is a part of seeing what is really there. Master Kripal defined sin in one place as forgetting of origin, right? Godhead. We come from God. This is what is meant when it said we are the children of God. Right? It's what is meant by God resides in every heart. We come from God. Our essence is not different from him. That is what is meant by all those things. Our origin is God. When we forget that, then we get into the state that has been called sin. But the word sin also 
the word that is used throughout the New Testament. Every time Jesus or St. Paul or everybody else says the word sin is hamartia, which is a Greek word that means missing the mark. It's an archery term. When you shoot an arrow at a target and you miss, that's hamartia. And that's the exactly the understanding of it that is there every time in the New Testament the word is used. We're missing the point. This isn't what we were born for. We were born for something better, something realer. Okay? We don't have to spend our lives missing the point. We don't have to. We don't have to spend our lives forgetting who we are. We don't have to do that. We can live on the level of remembrance. We can live on the level of hitting the target. This is our possibility. Why is it our possibility? Because the masters come one after the other since the world has begun. And this is Jesus' promise. Seek and ye shall find. Ask and it shall be given unto you. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. There's no equivocation there at all. Not, not the least little bit. Seek and ye shall find. You know, that's a promise. And the reason that he can give that promise so boldly is that he knew that what Swamiji says in the Sarbachan, Satguru is an incarnation eternally present upon the earth. And before that he says, whoever seeks the Satguru will find him because the Satguru is an incarnation eternally present upon the earth. So the masters are always here and they come one after the other. Some of them are famous, some are not. Sometimes there's more than one at a time. But the point is, they come in all traditions, in all religions, in both sexes, in all races. And the point is that they come to show us, to tell us, and to help us do exactly this. To live on the level of that which we were born to be. This is our, our option, and we can do that. So that's what the masters come to do. And all of the things they tell us about are really means to this end. Okay. To do Simran, Simran is the corrective for the forgetting. Simran is remembrance. If we are remembering God, and there is significance too in the five names that we are given at initiation, the fact is that any name a master tells anyone to remember becomes a form of Simran, can be used for that purpose because the impulse comes from the living master. But there is a significance in that normally the masters give out um, the five names that they do because that enables us to have a sense of the totality of the universe, that God is existing on five levels and those five levels together constitute what we experience when we go within. 
So the Simran is a Sanchi has compared it to a stairway, he's compared it to a broom, he has compared it to a great many things. Both he and Master Kripal have talked a lot about the um, uses of Simran and the way in which it cuts the automatic Simran that we do all the time without even thinking about it, the constant running of our mind in ways which we don't even question or often don't even notice. So, of course, it's difficult to cut that. But that that running of the mind, where we don't even notice it, that is the means by which the illusion is promulgated. Right? If we do that, then the edifice, you could say the, the castle of maya, of illusion is built up within us. We see things in ways that they really are not because our mind is creating this constant fabric of not exactly falsehood, but false impressions. It's very difficult to um, bring the inner reality out into the outer world. It doesn't work well when we try to do it. It is very difficult for the, the mind of the person when it's functioning on the physical level to retain and to correctly convey that which it has experienced on other levels. And it can only be done when the totality of the thing is completely achieved so that the person is one unity from physical up to the level of such kind of pure spiritual. When that happens, then many, many things become possible. But the remembrance works even though that's true. Humility and the constantness that is required when we do Simran the way the Master has instructed us will work in our favor and work against the, uh, the uh, constant missing the point and the false remembrances. Anyway, this is what the Master's come for. And there's a thousand stories. All of it is like that. They do, the God, the thing to remember here is that despite all this, despite the fact that we are missing the point all the time, despite the fact that we are constantly forgetting who we really are and what we were born to do, despite the fact that the human mind has an incredible aptitude even after we are given the initiation and after we have had some experience of who the Master is and, and his love, even then we can put all these things into a, a new kind of a set of assumptions and go along with them and continue missing the point. This is what we mean when we say that I mean, it's what we might mean. Anyway, excuse me.
or has turned um, esoteric understanding into exoteric understanding. This is what happens, in other words, when a, when a master and his disciples and the path that he teaches becomes an organized religious institution. And it's happened, of course, over and over again down through the history of the world. Um, it is not difficult for the mind to take the most sublime inner truths and build a new construction out of them, which, once it is built, is just as much forgetful and just as much missing the point as uh, the construction that we originally came out of. So this is, the masters continue to come. This is why just one master couldn't have come once for all, with the way many different religions think. But it, it is against the psychology of the world. It's not the way people work. And um, it, it can't happen that way. The Satguru is an incarnation eternally present upon the earth for exactly this reason. And this is why um, we can never think that we don't need the Master. Because whenever we leave behind or think that we now can make it without, the one who is truly and completely done it then uh, we very quickly turn the whole thing into a new foundation. And, uh, and we think we are waking up when in fact we are not. So this is what the Master wants from us. And I do think that um, it is incumbent on satsangis to take very seriously what the Master says in these matters for our own benefit. You know, it's not a question the Master loves us, he never stops loving us, and he will do within that love, he will do whatever he can do, whatever is doable, to bring us to the point where we do the thing for ourselves. In fact, you can say that his work is almost entirely consists of this. To persuade, to convince, if necessary, to trick people into doing what they should do for their own good. And that which will make them really happy. He does that he does that and he cannot help doing that but if we don't appreciate what he is giving us, then who is the loser? You see, that's the point. Master Kripal used to um, give the example of a very strong person physically 
and a gang of bullies who were beating up people. A weak person would be beaten up by them and would be extremely unhappy and would um, holler and yell and need a lot of help. But a strong person would let them beat up, beat him up, and his master would say he would not give a fig for it because he was strong. He could stand it. It's something like that. He used that specifically as an example for the soul. And he used to tell a story which Sanchi has referred to many times also. When, when Master Kripal was a young man, he used to live in Lahore, which is now in Pakistan. And he would go out and meditate. He was a married man, and he had children, and he had a full-time job, a job which eventually became an extremely demanding one, although it might not have been so demanding at this time. But he was a bureaucrat. He was a deputy assistant controller of military accounts in the Indian, the British Empire Indian equivalent of the Department of Defense. And that was what he became. He didn't start out. He started out as a clerk, of course, and worked his way up. So with all that, with the fact that he had a demanding job and he was married and he had kids, he spent generally his nights by the River Ravi, which runs through Lahore in the Punjab, in meditation. Sometimes, if he had trouble staying awake, he would go into the river and stand with the water up to his chin and meditate there all night long. But sometimes he would just sit on the bank. Anyway, at the same time, there was a father there with his son whom he was training to be a wrestler. And he was also there all night in the cold uh, by the river Ravi, exercising and being physically trained. And that boy, Master noticed that boy, and he knew who he was, and he followed his career. I think he felt some affinity for him, because they were both doing exercises in the same place at the same time. He grew up to become Ganga the wrestler, very famous wrestler in India of that time, and was champion, could not be defeated. And of course the master went on to become the master. And both of them got it the same basic way. But the point is that if we want to be able to deal with things, generally people, this was certainly my experience, are very content with the way we are until we come up against something we can't handle. When we can't handle it, then we suddenly see, why can't I deal with this? We may have high ideals. We may really love, want to love God and people. We may really believe in our hearts that God resides in every heart. We may feel that it is of the utmost importance that we love God with all our heart and that we love our neighbor as ourself. All of these things may be very much in our minds, 
but when in a normal course of events it may seem to us that we do them very um, very easily there was a survey taken back in the 50s by an author named Will Herberg who wrote a book called Protestant Catholic Jew about religious situation in the United States at that time in which he conducted a survey and he reported that over 70% of the people surveyed said yes, they love God with all their heart, all their soul, all their strength, and they love their neighbor as themselves. They didn't have any problem with that at all. And it's easy to think that. This is part of the what I was saying earlier about the assumptions and the um, the way in which our, our network of illusion is built up. It's okay to think that, um, and we can certainly think that, but then when something happens and we realize we don't, that's when it becomes obvious to us that we need to be stronger. We need to have more what masters sometimes call moral muscles to make, to bring down into real life that which we know in our hearts is true. To manifest in the world around us the love that we know is in our hearts and to be able to not have our, our framework, our life turned into the frameworks or lives of anyone who crosses our path willy-nilly because they are stronger than we are and we simply can't prevent them from doing that. We don't have to accept the present, but in order to not accept it, the faculty of not accepting it has to be there. As C.S. Lewis said, we can't expect the gods to meet us face to face until we have faces. The that which receives the grace has to exist before grace can be received. All of these things come together like that, and they are what the Master um, comes to do. And it's what he wants us to do also. Right, if anyone, um, Doris tells me that um, you people all love questions and answers. If uh, anyone has anything, I don't, I mean, you can have the question. I don't guarantee very much about the answer, but it's okay with me if you want to ask. If not, I can keep on talking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead.
Well, if you can remember, I, I mean, the masters have said a lot about this. I, I, uh, I don't like to get too specific, but um, if we remember what it is we're really doing, again, most of the trouble people have on the path of this level or, or this sort of trouble or any other kind of trouble really does come from forgetting what it is that we're doing at the time. So when we're meditating, remember that the Master talks about looking into the middle of what we see to find out what is there. If we remember what we want to do more than anything in the world is to penetrate the darkness that's within and find out what's on the other side, is not when we when we sit like that. I I have a trouble. I don't really like the the English word meditation, okay? Because it really is not what we're doing. What we are doing is looking for our original self, and it's a very real thing that we are doing, and it's enormously satisfying. This is the point. When we really do it like that. There is nothing in the world that's as enjoyable, because this is what it's like. We suddenly, if we um, do exercises, and we suddenly find that our body is much stronger than it used to be, how happy it makes us! And a runner—not that I am a runner, but I know a number of runners. I've known a number of runners in my life the way they feel when they pull it off. You know, they really enjoy it. And um, it's like all the time they're doing it, they never forget why they're doing it. And, and we have to come to the meditation if we use that word in the same way, I think. And um, the contracting of the attention, which is what happens when we go into the eye focus, is the source of all pleasure. Anytime we, Master has been very specific about this, anytime we enjoy anything, it's because our attention is contracted onto that thing. It isn't the thing itself, it's the contracting of the attention that gives us pleasure. Master used an illustration. If, for example, we're watching a movie or a play, and we're really enjoying it, we're really into it. And somebody comes and tells us, your son fell out of the window. And uh, we're still there in the theater for a few minutes anyway. We're still looking at the screen. What do we care about what's going on? Our attention suddenly left that and is now on something else. And uh, our whole perception of the thing is altered totally. So it's... it's um, when we meditate, so-called, when we do the practices, and when, I mean, when in English they say meditation, but the Master always says bhajan and simran, because he's very, he's always connects specifically to exactly what it is that we're doing. Um, when we do that, we um, are putting the attention back onto itself, and since it's the ultimate source of pleasure to begin with, then um, it's even nicer. 
So if you can remember that, I think it it'll help. And never forget that you you're not if you know when we sit when we think I'm sitting in an exercise I'm I gotta do this now um, it's my obligation to do two hours a day when we think like that it's such a bad way to go in so many people do it I have done it but it's really not a good way and uh, I think I've got to penetrate through today you know I gotta do it today Master is waiting for me. Which is what he says. Master is waiting for us at the tenth door behind the eyes. So we want to see him. We have we have the option. Angela, you were. Uh-huh. Um, at the time of the death, the decision is made whether the soul is to return or desires dictate that. Many, since I've been on the path, you hear the statement, well, Sarchin has said all of these initiatives. That's right. He has. has said, That's right. But Master speaks very, there's, there's lots of talks on doing his will on mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I can talk about it. Whether, whether what will be when I get finished will be clarified or not is another thing. Uh, yeah, both are there. You're absolutely right. Sanji has said very unequivocally that all of his initiates will be liberated. And uh, Master Kripal, if he didn't say exactly those words, he said something very similar. That's for sure. And yet it is also true that... Uh, when we leave the body at the time of death, that which we want at that time is what determines what happens to us. If we are in a state of remembrance at that time, we will be taken up and we will keep on going. If we are in a state of desiring things of this world, then we will be pulled back into this world. And if they are vicious enough nature, we might even have to spend time in unpleasant places that are not in this world. But the, the fact is, Angela, that don't underestimate the Master's ability excuse me, to, um, to get us to do what he wants us to do and what we really want to do. Here the story of the man with the three stuffed chapatis, the greedy man, is coming. Remember at the I won't tell the whole story because it takes a long time, but at the end of that story, the man has simply not told the truth. He cannot. He's a he's a congenital liar. So the master Sanchi says he is determined to save him. He is determined to get him to tell the truth. So he makes, remember, he makes those three piles of gold and jewels and things, which he creates out of pebbles. And he says, all right, one pile is for you, one pile is for me, and the third pile is for whoever ate that third stuffed chapati. And the man says, yes, master, I, I swear by the God, I did eat it. Okay? 
because his greed overcame his congenital lying. The master used one part of himself against the other part to get him to do that which he had to do in order to be saved. All right, something like that happens with all of us. Why do you think the master appears to people at the time of death? It is to make it absolutely impossible to forget him. If we die seeing him, we are going to remember what the thing is and we will be taken up. I mean, he comes to get us, basically. He does this for people who don't really know what they're remembering. If you remember all the stories that are told, people who knew him only because of somebody else that told them about him, or people who maybe don't even know who the Master is but who love somebody who is connected to him. In his graciousness, that love connects straight through the other person right to the Master, and uh, so that it gives him an ability to appear to people like that also. And he will take them. So he takes care of it that way. And uh, I don't think any initiate or anyone who is connected to an initiate, for that matter, needs to worry about this. I mean, we should do our best. Swamiji says in the Sarbachan that lifelong bhajan and simran is for the purpose of not forgetting at the time of death. Okay? So we should... We should do Simran so much that there's no question of forgetting it at the time of death. But the more we do, the easier it is for the Master to, to work his will with us. But we shouldn't worry about it. And he will use, just like the Master used that, the greed of the greedy man to make him do what he wanted him to, he'll do that with us too. He can do that. He is absolutely capable. Yes. The Ambrosial the Ambrosial Hour. Yeah. Well, it it I, it's confusing. I don't blame you. Um, I'll say this: that the the master deals with us as we need at the time. It, as we need, yeah, at the time. If, for example, suppose someone is really obsessed with getting something, and they come to the master and they say. Can I have this? And he says yes, okay? And that gives them peace of mind and, calm, and calms them down. And they go away and they're able to rise above the obsession. But um, that never happens. But in the meantime, they have changed so much. They have grown so much. They no longer care whether it's ever happened or not. 
is something like that. The, the Master, it may be that there are necessities when he will tell us something that needs to be told us at a given time that it would not be wise not to tell us. And that, um, and yet it isn't, doesn't in fact happen the way that we told. But by the time that becomes obvious, there is um, no longer, it's no longer an issue. The, a famous story in this regard is the, um, and this is probably the best illustration I know in the literature, is the story of, of the, the uh, Ajamal the sinner, yeah, who was uh, thrown out of his village because he had committed some sin. I think it was adultery, I'm not sure. Something that the villagers didn't like, and they threw him out, and he lived by himself. And a master came by and asked him um, what was going on with him, and he said, I am Ajamal the sinner, and I don't, I'm not good enough to live in the village. So the master took pity on him, and he said, well, what, what would you like? And Ajamal said that he needed a son. He wanted to have a son. And the master told him, all right, you will have a son. And when you have him, you should name him Narayan. Narayan means God. So he um, began thinking about this son that he was going to get, and he began thinking of him as Narayan, and he remembered him. He never had the son, but he remembered Narayan, Narayan. In effect, he was doing Simran of that. And when he died, the master came to take him. And he had, in, in effect, done a spiritual practice all his life. But the son never came. I, sometimes it's like that. I wouldn't... I wouldn't... It's not a big thing. I mean, it's not something that happens with most people most of the time. But it would be a special kind of thing the master does. I think it's an interesting question. I also read that. The master never says, I will do such and such, but he says, if it's in the will of God, it's in the will of Master Kapal. And he has told them that, and, and, and then it's ended up that he hasn't actually gone there. But what's happened is, for a year or whatever the time was that they were expecting him to come, all of their attention was focused on preparing for the master to come to their place, which you could see was a wonderful thing for them. It brought them all together, and it made them work hard, and it made them focus very intently on the master and I don't know that uh, that people have ever felt cheated or betrayed by the master when it turned out that he wasn't he didn't actually end up actually coming physically I think they felt very uh, filled and rewarded by just having the hope and having the anticipation of having him come and I think that he does um, a lot of times the master gives us gives us what we really want, but not in the form that we think of it in when we're asking for it. But actually, we're getting what we really what we really want. We just didn't quite understand when we were asking for it how 
<laughs> the form that he, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, there's another, um, there's, there's an, another part of it too. Um, there was, a freak in, I remember in 1966, um, the master was supposed. Master Kripal Singh was supposed to go to Europe. Uh, it was in connection with the World Fellowship of Religions, and the the Baron von Blomberg had set up, at the master's request, had set up a program in Europe, um, and everyone had been told the master was coming. And at the last minute, the master cancelled. He didn't go, and the Baron. I mean, someone who was there told me this, that the Baron was on the phone from Europe begging him to come. He said, everyone is counting on you coming. Please come. You know, the thing will fall apart if you're not there. And the Master said, look here, I am under orders. Excuse me. I am under orders, and orders can change at the last minute. So he never went. And then they, the meetings were held, but the Master wasn't there. So that's a part of it, too, that there are things that we don't necessarily, um, we don't know how they fit into the whole like that. He's also in the picture, if you, if you will. <laughs> well, here's the, here's the man who is uh, basically introducing the master to the Pope. Uh, and he was a Catholic. And he had connections uh, in Europe amongst what I can call the Catholic nobility many of the high dukes and counts are um, are catholic in europe and he, and he was uh, he had a lot of in with those people and it was arranged that way and uh, i don't i've heard different things about that over the years whether it was an easy thing to arrange or not but they had a meeting i mean the, the picture is just the the um um, you know, the record of the meeting, but they talked for half an hour or so. And I remember once I was present when Master talked about what they had talked about, but I don't remember it well enough to to try to convey it. Yeah. How late do you want to go?
problem, you see. Okay. Um, all right. Yeah, let's, can we have a closing bhajan? I'm sure if my sister was the only one who had the problem, you know, we could all go and support her. But uh, I have the same problem. And she and I are being raised up in a Christian home where miracles were performed most likely daily in our home of some kind. And we had received of the Holy Spirit of gifts. And she became a missionary and she worked very hard at that. And she gave her life for those people. And she is so involved in that. And <clears throat> we thought all the time that it was Jesus that was giving us all of these experiences. But when I talked to the Master, and I said, when I got the gift of tongues when I was 12 years old, I was told that Jesus gave me that gift, and I give him thanks for it. But now I want <clears throat> to tell you that <clears throat> Sarwan, was the one that gave me the gift. And I'm sorry that I didn't have the truth. And he said, by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body. It doesn't make any difference with Jesus. It doesn't make any difference with any of the masters. And it doesn't make any difference with me. Because there's only one master spirit. That's right. And therefore, we recognize <clears throat> your thanks as though you were calling our name. So, as the Master has stood by and allowed Helen and I to grow up into our religious fantasy tree, you understand this? And we have grown up and when a person or a child is climbing the tree he's looking up and he's just going up he doesn't realize the distance he has traveled or that's the right. danger that he's in exactly. until he summits the last limb that's right and he looks down and he sees where he is and that's what's happened to helen and i when we become initiated by the master he allowed us to look down to see our terrible condition. Now to come down out of that tree, it's trembling, fearful, because we're afraid we're going to fall. That's right. <clears throat> and as he is bringing us down, he's taking away from us that which we seemeth to have. You remember the parable? Mm -hmm. You got very close to it, but you told another one. And that is that this fellow that had the one talent yep. 
he wrapped it in a napkin. That's right. Put it here, and he was put in the grave. And he come out, and he remembered he had it, and he took it to his master. And he said, I knew that you was an austerous man that you had reaped where you hadn't sowed, right. and you had gathered where you hadn't strolled. And I was afraid, and I kept this, and I give it back to you. What had happened to the man? He had gone to Sunday school, and he had saw this master reaping in a field of his neighbor who was in the bed sick, and he couldn't gather his crops, and this master was gathering his crops on the Sabbath day, and he thought he was stealing his grain. So, he accused him. So when we see what our minds is capable of causing us to think and to imagine vain things that have no truth in them, and we call good evil and evil good, and we have to be brought down out of these trees, and the Master is bringing us down out of our self-righteousness, down out of our important place, where people used to say, she used to, she's a missionary, she, all of these things. These things have to be erased from our consciousness. For this to transpire, there has to be an inner working of the Master of the Holy Spirit, which is the inner workings of the Master, to withdraw us from that conscious awareness where that we can become nothing. And the Master makes it so plain that we must become of no value, become a void. And when we become a void, then he fills that void with himself. I'm hungry to be emptied out. I need help. I need support. I need your prayers. May God be merciful unto me, a sinner, that I might be able to remember him at all times. Because I have need. in him. That's to be submerged, put out of sight, into the master's ability. And I need my mind changed, for I won't think it's robbery to be equal with God. As you told us that we are the essence of God, but we're in the left field. We're in the bullpen. He can't use it. But the day is coming when he's going to call us out. And when he's going to give to us that which is rightfully ours to every woman according to his labor, so shall it be. And I understand that God is dealing with such things. And you come and you say these things and you're telling us not to dwell on the outward experiences, not to dwell on the, the shell, not to eat the husk, but to eat the germ that's in the grain.